what are the connections between upper airway infections, our immune system, and our brain? In today's podcast, I'm honored to speak with the 2023 Breakthrough Prize winner, Dr. Emmanuel Mignot, Director of Stanford Center for Sleep Sciences and Medicine. We discuss new advances in our understanding of narcolepsy as likely an autoimmune disorder brought on by genetic and environmental factors. And please note that we recorded this in April 2020, when the COVID-19 pandemic was still very new. Yet this discussion remains timely and important as we continue to learn so much from the frontiers of immunology and neuroscience. Welcome to Project Sleep's podcast. Project Sleep is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to raising awareness and advocating for sleep health, sleep equity, and sleep disorders. I'm your host, Julie Flygar. We're so glad you're here as we work together towards making sleep cool. On this podcast, all guests express their own opinions. While medical diagnoses and treatment options are discussed for educational purposes, this information should not be taken as medical advice. Each person's experience is so unique, which is why it's so important to always consult your own medical team when making decisions about your own health. If you haven't done so yet, please hit the subscribe button so you never miss a Project Sleep podcast episode. And if you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a rating or review wherever you listen so that we can reach more listeners and raise more awareness. The Sleep Insight series invites listeners to learn about this amazing adventure we take every night called sleep. Through these insightful discussions, we examine sleep and our society's beliefs about sleep from a variety of angles. We hope you'll learn some cool new facts and analogies that you can use to help us raise awareness about this underappreciated one-third of our lives. Hello, everyone. We're just so excited to have Dr. Mignot. So I don't know if you guys know, uh, Dr. Mignot and I were both in Australia years ago for a wonderful conference hosted by Narclepsy Australia. And this is where I learned that Dr. Mignot is quite the dancer. I don't know. I, I do my best, but it's true as I enjoy it. But I mean, in France, I think we dance a little bit more. So that comes a little bit from my uh, education, you know. I mean, <laughs> and I don't know if everyone knows that Dr. Mignot's dog, Watson, does have narcolepsy with cataplexy. So how's his cataplexy? I mean, it's, it's still the same. I mean, I think it's hardest when we walk, actually, for a long time. Then at the end, sometimes he's just exhausted, sleepy, and he just can't move anymore. But the good news about a chihuahua is that it's really easy to carry, and it's very easygoing, so it's not a big problem. Well, um, with that, let's go ahead and get started and talk about, uh, since September of 2018, there's been a lot of advancements in our understanding, thanks to you and to some other research groups, in understanding type 1 narcolepsy with cataplexy and more about the genetics and some of the environmental factors. So can you give us an update? Yes, I think now it's more and more clear that uh, the cause of narcolepsy type 1 is really this autoimmune process where the immune system gets triggered by the flu and starts to attack certain pieces of the flu that resemble hypocretinorexin, which is a chemical in the brain that helps to stay awake. And when the immune system starts to confuse you know, the flu and these cells that produce hypocretin, they destroy them. And once you don't have hypocretin, this is a cause of type 1 narcolepsy. And, and uh, that's a relatively simple. Well, you make it sound simple. My goodness. For the environmental factors, do you think it's just flu or could it be other things? So we don't know. Probably flu is a big one, but strept also has been suggested, strepto, uh, strep throat. And I still believe that it's involved as well, that, you know, if you have the flu and strep on top of it, it makes it worse. Whether or not we'll discover some other, other things that could cause it or trigger the immune response, it's always possible because nature is very diverse. So there must be a lot of different bugs or virus that may have sequence that could look a little bit like apocretin. So of course, you're going to ask me if coronavirus is going to uh, trigger narcolepsy. Is that right? Well, I, at some point, yes, I was going to ask something <laughs> like that. <laughs> Yes, actually someone from the CDC asked me that question and it's difficult to be sure, but probably not because I think we would have noticed it before, but it's not possible to really be sure that it 
it could not have a sequence inside that could resemble the apocretin. Because one of the things we've discovered actually very recently is that it's quite difficult to figure out based on the sequence, you know, just looking at the sequence of the flu peptides and, and the apocretin, what really resembles apocretin. Uh, we don't have a good model. So it's more in, in three-dimensional space that it needs to resemble. And it's not very easy to make a model to see what really resembles hypocretin. So it's always possible that there will be something in the coronavirus that resembles hypocretin, but probably not. Can you explain that little piece a little bit um, over again for me? So the uh, flu has a piece of it that mimics, or no, not mimic, it looks like a hypocretin cell? Yes. So exactly. What happened is... Uh, there's a little piece of the flu that looks a little bit like apocretin in its sequence and its structure, so that when the immune systems, the immune cells that are recognizing the, the virus, they take the virus, they kind of shoot it up in small little pieces, and then they recognize specific pieces. And one of these pieces looks like apocretin. So it starts to attack the virus, recognizing this piece with special receptor. And then at one point, we don't exactly know why, there is some hypocretin floating around close by and it starts to recognize the hypocretin. And then it gets more and more directed towards hypocretin. And then it starts to think that the hypocretin is just a flu. And as a consequence, it attacks the cells that produce hypocretin like if they were flu infected cells. And then at the end, they are all dead and you have narcolepsy. And why is it certain people that that happens to? Ah, so there are probably many different explanations. One of them is genetic, because the way our genetic system reacts to flu infections or to infection in general is very personalized. And it's very useful because otherwise, if a new flu was coming about, or like the coronavirus, for example, we don't know why some people are very sick and others are totally fine. In fact, we know, of course, that if you're old and you have a lot of comorbidity, you have a lot more chance of, of having a very severe coronavirus. But there are even kids that, some, that sometimes die from the coronavirus or young adults. And almost surely it's their genetic because everyone has a slightly different genetic makeup that makes them able to direct uh, immune reaction or against different pieces of the coronavirus. And that makes us better able to fight the coronavirus if he mutates in different areas, because this way we're not all attacking the same piece of the coronavirus. And that's a little bit the same for the flu and narcolepsy. There is some people that attack more a certain piece of the flu and others that attack other pieces of flu. And that depends on certain of their gene, in particular ones that's called HLA, which some of you that are nerds like me you know, <laughs> know about it. There is a, a gene called HLA that predisposes to narcolepsy. And this HLA gene has like many, many different variants. And there's only one particular variant that predisposes to narcolepsy. That's called DQB10602 that 25% of the population has. And you need to have this particular variant because this particular variant is sees a piece of the peptide of the flu that looks like uh, hypocretin. If you don't have this particular piece of HLA subtype, which about 25% of the population has, you are going to bind other pieces of the virus that don't look like apocretin. So that's why at least the genetic play a big role. And I'm sure for coronavirus, we're going to discover the same thing, that the people who are very sick probably have certain HLA subtype, for example. And maybe we'll also discover that maybe some people who after coronavirus will have strange complications, you know, autoimmune disease. That's very possible, depending on their genetic makeup. So... Definitely some is genes. There are also genes that are very important with how we react to the flu. We have even found certain genes that patients with narcolepsy have more than controls that process a little bit differently the flu or make the immune cell more reactive to the flu. And all this makes you more susceptible to narcolepsy. And in addition to the genetic, we know that there's just bad luck that happens because many people get the flu and many people have a genetic makeup and only a very small percent get narcolepsy. And the bad luck is at least partially due to probably the type of infection you have had in the past 
because your immune system learns every year. Every time you get a new flu, it, it just learns this new flu and it kind of uh, adapts itself over the years. So the state of your immune system depends on what you have experienced as infection since you have been born. And that's why actually even twins that have exactly the same genetic, if you really look at the immune system after 15 years, it's quite different. So there's definitely your past, you know, past uh, history of infections that also makes you more or less susceptible to narcolepsy. So that's why actually we even have hope that one day we might even be able to maybe vaccinate people to prevent them from developing narcolepsy because we might be able to make their immune system go in a certain direction against the flu that will avoid them to develop these immune reactions that is confusing the flu with hypocrisy. When is that coming? Ah, <laughs> uh, that's a good question. So I think we could try now. The problem is, you know, narcolepsy is not that common and people are always a bit afraid of tankering with nature a little bit, you know. Is that worth it to, to do it? Considering that there are so few people who, who develop narcolepsy, it's very difficult. You could you you never know. By pushing the, the reaction uh, towards not narcolepsy, maybe you could create another problem. You can never be absolutely sure. I don't think so. And I think eventually when we'll know more, it will be done. But let's say that right now, I think we need to do a little more research before, before doing this. I think yeah. where it could be very helpful is, for example, Julie, uh, you know, in your brothers or sisters or, you know, people who are family members because they're more chance of developing narcolepsy. We know that it's not a huge risk. It's only about 1% if it's a brother, sister or child. So it's not like something to be worried about, but 1% is not negligible. So for these people, I think it could be worth it to develop a special vaccine or something that would that you could give them when they're young and will avoid maybe them to ever develop narcolepsy. Uh, people that have the DB, I'll get it wrong, but the genetic marker, but that's still a quarter of all people, right? That have yes. that. So I think, yeah, even in patients who have, so the, the chance of developing narcolepsy in the general population is about one for two to 3,000 people. If you are DQB1 or 602 positive, it's about one for 800 people, okay? still low okay but if you add all the genes who are actually now doing that if you add all the genetic predisposition you could tell actually exactly what chance everyone has to develop narcolepsy but still at the end i think we still would come up with oh you know even if you i take your genetic makeup i would probably say oh julie has one for 200 chance of developing narcolepsy i would never say be able to say from the genetic Julie, that's it. You have you are going to develop narcolepsy. But when you go to one for two hundred or one for one hundred, like family members or people who have a high genetic loading, uh, it might be worth it to consider a vaccine slightly different and would prevent the development of narcolepsy. But I think it will take a long time before this is, uh, you know, done. Unfortunately, I wish that things will move faster. But I think you have heard all the the discussion about how complicated it is to introduce a new vaccine and of course all of you know that there were one particular vaccine that even triggered narcolepsy so it's always a risk-benefit ratio to try something new so you there still needs to be stuff to figure out about the genetics and about the immunology right it's not like, exactly oh, okay and then because you're right if we somehow are able to really understand this process completely. You know, we might even be able to see which one are highly at risk because, for example, there may be some people who are already have the cells that are ready to be activated by the virus and could be then killing hypocritic neurons. Maybe these people is only one percent out of ten of narcoleptics, and then those we might it might be really worth it to prevent it. So if we could discover the exact cells in the blood that are dangerous, we might be able to find a way to avoid them to be ever activated. So, you know, this is a fun and also the frustration of research. You know, we are, it's a little bit like you're trying to narrow down and narrow down, narrow down until you, you really get to the final answer. And I think we still have to learn about the immunology to be able to really predict who is going to develop narcolepsy. 
But it might be possible that one day we'll be able to take a blood sample and say, oh, this person is really at very high risk because they already have the cells that are dangerous. And those maybe we could use a vaccine to prevent it. I just think it's so fascinating. Um, Dr. Mignot and I had a, a phone call a few weeks ago that sparked my idea to do this because Dr. Mignot actually recommended a book to me about five years ago, I think when we were in Australia, uh-huh. called The Great Influenza. And so I'd, I'd read that five years ago, not realizing, you know, of course, how it would be so relevant. You know, <laughs> yeah. But I remembered the specific chapter and I went back and looked at it again, um, how after the uh, 1918 flu, it took a while too. It wasn't always immediate, but there was um, Parkinson's-like uh, symptoms. And there was even an interesting form of schizophrenia that some people, you know, developed. And so, you know, this kind of this idea, I think our society hasn't quite caught up to understanding how flus and influenzas and that immune systems interaction with the brain and, and neuroscience. I think you're absolutely right. I want to say one thing about that is what is the most complicated organ in the body is the brain, right? I mean, we know it's super complicated. But actually, the immune system is as complicated because every minute, you know, we have, I mean, if you ever take a Petri dish and of course I, you spit on it, I don't advise you to do it, but a lot of things will grow pretty disgusting, you know, staphylococcus and all, oh, you know, it's beautiful. But even if you take like the surface of your skin, we have five more, I, you have heard that your microbiome, we have five more bacteria that we, that we have human cells. So we, it's an enormous amount of bacteria and virus that are always in constant synergy with you. And of course, it's, it's, it's I'm sorry to say, but I still believe in natural selection. <laughs> it's kind of natural selection in action every second. So the day you are dead, these things you, you, I mean, I'm sorry, but you just start to rot from the inside because the bacteria just are not enough kept, you know, by the immune system. So we are constantly fighting even our own bacteria that are friends of us. We still tell them, you know, just don't go too much, you know. So the immune system is more kind of a general equilibrium. And sometimes we get this completely new new flu or new bacteria, but it's incredibly complex. It's really our, our whole interaction with the outside. And I think it's estimated that there is a, about 10% of all the genes in the body that have a role in the immune system. It's, it's absolutely huge. So we are discovering that more and more disease are going to be related to infections and in ways that we did not understand. And for a long time, people have believed that the brain was immunoprivileged. You know, this is a story of mankind as well. I mean, if you read a lot of history book, we didn't, the man, or we thought that we were in the center of the universe. You know, of course, I mean, where, you know, so the earth is in the center. And then we discovered we run around the sun. And then after, you know, we probably thought that we were, Europe was a, the only center of the universe. And of course, that's not true. And then after we believe that we were, you know, different from all animals and we realized that we're the same in our own animals. And then we discovered that we have a very different conscience and we're different from animals. But now we are realizing that animals have very complex behaviors. And they, there were one paper recently just came out that suggested that certain monkeys already have all the instruments for, for language. So it's clear that the more you realize, the more we, we see that we are not different from from animals. And at the same way, of course, the brain is considered the gold organ. You know, my God, the brain, that's, that's us, you know. But actually, I think we are really underestimating a lot what the peripheral body can, can, can do. And I wouldn't be surprised, for example, if you, when, you, when we measure proteins or even gene expression in different parts of the body, like the liver, you can actually find many, like about 10% to 30% of the gene or protein in the liver, they change with sleep. So it's like if the liver was sleeping himself. So I think we, we definitely overestimate probably a little bit our brain. And the second thing is we have always kind of looked at it like it's immune privilege, that the immune system didn't go there because it was all in the protected because it was so important because we're so unique. And now we realize that it's not very different from other organs. 
that cells of the immune system go into the brain and they make sure that the brain is not infected like the rest of the organs. So right. the same way they can be subjected to autoimmune disease like narcolepsy. But it's a relatively new concept. I mean, this was really uh, not believed to be true even 10 years ago. Now there is a lot more interest in understanding how the immune system works in the brain. And many people is believed in many, many more diseases than just narcolepsy. Right. Uh, and schizophrenia and Parkinson, exactly. Can you tell us a little bit more um, about what happened in 2009 and 2010? So you alluded to a vaccine causing narcolepsy, but can you go over just briefly like what happened with the H1N1 flu? Yes. So I, I think that's good because maybe I can teach a few of our listeners about the, the differences between the coronavirus and the flu. Now, genetic material comes in two flavors, you know, DNA and RNA generally, and DNA is what we have in our cells. And RNA, a lot of viruses have RNA and instead of their DNA. You know, RNA is something we produce in our body to produce protein, but it's not our genetic materials that we use to transmit to make babies. You know, we use really DNA as our core genetic material. And the virus, like both the coronavirus and the flu, RNA virus, which are actually more common than DNA virus. And one issue with RNA virus is that they have to be transformed into DNA to be reproduced inside the cell because a virus is like a parasite. What it does is really inject its genetic material and try to use as much as possible of our own uh, cellular machinery to reproduce. So it can't reproduce by itself. So in fact, a virus is at the border between being alive or not. You know, what a lot of people ask, what, what it is. Is a virus a living organism or not? In theory, it's not a living organism because it cannot reproduce by itself. A bacteria is life because, you know, it can reproduce by itself. You give it nutrient and it reproduces by itself. But the virus, it can. It has to have a host and it's going to use the host machinery to reproduce itself. And when it's an RNA virus, it needs first to be transformed in DNA. And as a consequence, one problem is it mutates a lot because it makes a lot of errors when it does that. So the RNA virus are a little more dangerous because they mutate more. They change over time more, which is good and bad because at the same time, the coronavirus, like the flu, is going to evolve probably to be more uh, happy with humans, you know? And it's not the advantage of a virus to kill everyone because it rather like makes them sick and go to the next person. Because if you kill everybody, you know, it's not good for natural selection. The natural selection is not going to function. It will immediately die and the virus will disappear. That's why Ebola, which is so bad, has, has never been like a huge epidemic because it's too lethal. But right now we have a new virus that's at the same time can reproduce a lot and is also quite dangerous. Can you describe about the, the H1N1 and what happened? And how so the difference... So the slight difference between the flu and the uh, coronavirus also is, I mean, it's technical, but that the, the flu is in some ways more dangerous because it has what we call a segmented genome. That means that uh, the chromosome of the, of the flu, there are several chromosomes. Instead of being just one piece of DNA, it's several pieces of DNA. And as a consequence, sometimes it, it kind of, get mixed up with another flu from another species, usually swine or bird, and then it reassorts its chromosome, and suddenly you have a very, very uh, mixed virus that's half bird or half swine and half human, and then this one goes through the population, and that's a new virus uh, that can be very dangerous. This kind of, we, we call this, uh, uh, this animal flu that suddenly go into human, it happens once every 50 years, and when it happened, it can be really horrible. So you mentioned the 1918 flu. Uh, it killed about 100 million people. So that was really awful. And, and I think we can learn a lot from, from this to apply to coronavirus. Then there were another flu like that in 1957. It probably killed about 200,000 people. So that was a lot of people as well. Then there were a flu called the Hong Kong flu in 1968. And interestingly, so... Until 2009, the flu that were circulating was a descendant of these flus that came from animals that had adjusted to human. 
so that you know every year you get just almost the same flu that just has this new mutation and you just need a vaccination that change a tiny bit and you are relatively protected already because you have already seen the flu. But then when this new flu happened, and in 2009, there were another ones that came out of, of swine, it can be very dangerous because you, you may not have any immunity and the virus is much more nasty, as I explained, because it has not adjusted to the host with all this new mutation. And that's what happened in 2009. And we had already suspected that narcolepsy had something to do with the flu or strep throat, because we had noticed that in young kids that develop narcolepsy, very often they had upper airway infections or strep throat, and then they develop narcolepsy during the summer. Uh, so in, in kids, the narcolepsy is very often very abrupt. In, in older adults, sometimes it starts over a period of a year, so it's a little hard to say when it started. But in kids, it can be very, very abrupt. Suddenly someone developed narcolepsy sometime within a week, you know, the, the child was completely fine, he's seven years old and suddenly falls asleep all the time and gained a lot of weight. And the parents sometimes can tell you, oh, this started the week of March 15. You know, there's no doubt he was totally fine before. When narcolepsy started, these young ch children, it was always starting during the spring and the summer. So that with the strep and so forth, we already suspected that some infection during the summer were triggering narcolepsy. But then when you had this new flu that happened in 2009, the swine flu, people panicked exactly like coronavirus, except that, thank God, it was not as bad as coronavirus. But it started in May in uh, Mexico, you know, and initially people thought it was going to be as bad as the coronavirus because people, you know, the, what we call the case fatality rate, the number of people that come sick at the, in the hospital and that need really and die, was about 0.6%. For coronavirus, it's about 1.2%, so it's higher, but it was still very high. But that was overestimated, clearly, because there were probably a lot of people that had it that never had symptoms. But still, people really thought, my God, this new flu is going to be like 1918. And that's why they pushed this particular vac vaccine very, very quickly. And unlike coronavirus, it, it's... Oh. It's a little bit better because the flu, we already create a flu vaccine every year with these old strains that circulate. So creating a flu virus with a new strain, it, it's not that hard. It's a little bit like plugging in the, the same process with a different flu. So they really hurried the va vaccine at very fast. You know, from May, they could get it in December because they were very afraid of the following winter. But then there's one particular company that made a particular flu that we don't really understand, flu vaccine in Europe called Pandemrex, and you've heard of it. it. I believe probably a bit too strong and very special. And I think we actually found maybe, I, we have an idea of maybe why it was particularly bad. I think one of the ways the protein of the virus were extracted maybe created more of a problem. And it, it kind of seems to have triggered a lot of cases in Europe. But the virus itself also increased the number of cases. So clearly it was just the virus that sometimes was confused with hypocretin, but with a vaccine that maybe was a bit stronger and the composition a bit different, this effect was even magnified. So a lot of people developed narcolepsy after the, this particular vaccine only in, the, in Europe. So of course, now we are a little bit in the same situation. So now since 2009, Every year you are getting vaccinated, I hope, because I'm totally pro-vaccine, because the flu still kills, you know, 25 to 50,000 people every year, especially old people. And you are being vaccinated with a descendant of this H1N1 swine flu. Uh, you know, there's just a tiny bit of changes that are accumulated in the last 10 years, you know, so... They grow in eggs, a descendant to be as close as possible of what circulates now, but it's very similar to what it is. And it's also a descendant, second strain that is put in, which is from, I told you, in 1957, that's still circulating, that's called H3N2. And then you get also another influenza B, but that's not very important. So that every year, that's what you get as a kind of a booster. Well, I, so we won't know when another flu, I mean, I understand better from what you've just said that the swine flu from 2009 was this new, you know, thing. Yes. Um, we won't know, I now guess, 
whether corona or any of the bird flu, if any of those are going to cause an upsurge in narcolepsy until we're able to do that 3D modeling yes. you mentioned earlier? You're right. You're right. But in general, you know, it has more chance to be a flu because a flu looks like a flu. <laughs> and we know that the flu is, is resembling certain pieces of the flu are resembling, you know, hypocretin. So probability that a piece of coronavirus would resemble like apocretin is much lower. What about the um, strep throat? Does strep throat look like the hypocretin? Ah, the difference between the flu and strep is a bit the difference between a lizard and a human. A bacteria is a million times more complex than a virus. Oh. So... To give you an example, the, the, the virus, uh, like the flu, has only, I think, 13 proteins, 13 different proteins, because it uses, it just has a minimum needed to reproduce itself and to use the machinery of the cells. I guess while we're on this topic, I remember you mentioned that you have been working um, possibly, I think, was it on vaccine and vaccine side effects? Have you been helping with any of that as far as COVID-19? Yeah, so what we do in narcolepsy is actually very applicable to coronavirus. I mean, the, it's, I still focus on the flu itself because I'm a narcolepsy specialist and I want to solve your problems. <laughs> but everything I'm learning about the different pieces of the virus and how they interact with the immune system to produce these reactions, I think is absolutely 100% applicable to the coronavirus because I'm the forefront of understanding this. And, you know, it, it, it's pretty much the same problem. I mean, in fact, it wouldn't be very difficult for me technically to do similar studies with the coronavirus, trying to understand how the coronavirus is recognized by different people. It's just that, uh, I mean, I'm more focusing on narcolepsy, but knowledge is, is, is always transferable. I did want to um, ask you a little bit about narcolepsy type 2 and idiopathic hypersomnia. It's really been evolved, I think, over the last five years as far as our understanding of what those conditions are and, um, you know, what can you tell us about how we're kind of like coming to some better understandings? So I think we are at a destructive phase, okay? What I mean is that we have had a lot of assumptions, made a lot of assumptions about what these problems are, whereas we knew absolutely nothing. Like idiopathic persomnia is different from narcolepsy without cataplexy. It's very clear from more and more studies that there's no real limit. You know, it's like, it's almost like the flip of a coin. You do an MSLT, which is a test we use. Sometimes there's SORM, sometimes there's no SORM. If you don't have narcolepsy type 1, it can be just random. And it's pretty awful because some people are treated because they are called narcolepsy type 2, and others, it's much harder with the insurance, whereas they have exactly the same problem. They suffer as much. So everyone realized that there is a problem and that we need to come back and figure out a way to better study this condition and better realize where the subgroups are. That doing this MSLT to separate the subgroup is probably not the right way to do it. But the problem is like for, in a lot of cases, when you come back, it's also a little hard. I mean, you, you just have to two step back to better jump, as we say, and that's exactly where we are. But I think we have a, a lot more hope. Uh, and one of the big hope I have is thanks to new technology. I mean, I haven't discussed that much in this talk, but I have a little piece of myself that does a lot of machine learning and high computer science as applied to narcolepsy. And for example, now we can diagnose narcolepsy based on a night sleep study, just by the brain waves during the night. We, we don't really need the MSLT. Even so, it's not yet in clinical practice. We feel very strongly it works as well. So in theory, you could just do only a sleep study like for sleep apnea and know if you have narcolepsy. So that's already a big progress. But we also know that just doing a sleep study is not the best way. The best way would be to give you something that you can wear for three days, continuously move around, do whatever you want, go to bed like a little cap, and then we will see exactly how is your sleep and your wake in a natural environment. And then we will really know your problem. I am a big believer in how people live is really the key, is that right? And I think we need to apply this kind of new technology to narcolepsy and hypersomnia. And for narcolepsy type 1, it won't change that much because we have very good diagnostic procedure, even the MSLT works well. But I think for hypersomnia, we'll probably realize that there's very different types of waves in different people. 
And I'm sure that they will have different treatment. And I think we'll make a lot of progress. So my opinion for hypersomnia and narcolepsy without cataplexy is we're a little bit in a destructive phase, but at the same time, with a new technology that's coming, we have the opportunity of looking at it in a new way that I think is going to make a lot more difference in how we treat it. And also the other positive, of course, is that we have all these new treatments coming in. I mean, now there is a lot of interest in helping people who are tired and sleepy. And, you know, there, of course, there is drug to replace orexin, hypocretin. There is histamine drugs. I mean, there's a lot of interest in helping people with this kind of problem staying awake. But I think right now it's like we take a dart and then we throw it at the patient and we just hope it's going to work. And that's pretty much what I say my, to my patient. If, if they have narcolepsy type 1, it's pre-codified. But for narcolepsy type 2 or idiopathic hypersomnia, it's trial and error. Of course, there's a little bit of intuition. I mean, every doctor will tell you, yes, you know, I know very well what to do. But the truth is, it just, it's a little bit of intuition, but it's not worth much. You know, it's really trial and error. It's true for everyone. I mean, because all of our bodies are different, so... That's but. true, but for, for narcolepsy type 1, for example, there's still like the same biology exactly. The expectation of a response is much more clear, you know, and we see it pretty consistently. And of course, when we will have orexin agonist or hypocretin agonist, I mean, of course, that will going to be even more clear, in my opinion. Yeah. So I just, I just am so glad that there's more uh, research and interest in this area because I for a long time felt like most of the research or all of it was in narcolepsy type one, which of course is what I have. And so it's important, but I know a lot of people have type two narcolepsy and idiopathic hypersomnia. So yes. there is, it's a very, like, I don't know if I'd call it destructive, but it, there is a phase of movement right now. Yeah. I don't know if destructive is the right term, but I think we are really looking at it again in a more objective way. And, and it is really good. I mean, I think it's going to yeah, I, I suspect we will define new types of disease that will be much better as uh, a target of specific medication. We just need to do more study. And by the way, of course, I've always been interested also in idiopathic hypersomnia and narcolepsy type 2. But the reason I have not studied that is first that narcolepsy type 1 seems to be much better defined. So I knew it has more chance of finding a result. I didn't have to do this when I'm trying to redefine the problem, you know. It was already very well defined. And also now it's mostly solved. So I think definitely a lot more people, including myself, are going to work on these other conditions. Good. I like that. You mentioned a few things about treatment, but let's go over that a little bit more. So there have been a few treatments that have been recently FDA approved. Tell us a little bit about those. Yes. So there's one that's called pitolizan, which is... Uh, Working So most of the drug, first I, I should mention the drugs that we have right now that work on narcolepsy, they're pretty much at, of three classes. One of them is stimulants, like it's a little bit like amphetamine or modafinil, and they mostly work on a chemical called dopamine. Then there are antidepressants, and they mostly work on norepinephrine and serotonin, and they work on cataplexy, so they are not used as much for idiopathic hypersomnia, even so sometimes it can be beneficial. And then there is Xyrem that helps people to sleep at night. And clearly, these drugs sometimes can help idiopathic hypersomnia or narcolepsy without cataplexy. But as you see, they work on dopamine, norepinephrine, serotonin for antidepressant. And for GHB, it's probably GABA. And uh, these new drugs that are coming, one of them is called Sonosi, which is uh, working both on norepinephrine and dopamine. So it's a little bit different than modafinil. And it's still in the same class of drugs, how it works, than, than the stimulants. But it seems to be better, more effective than, than modafinil without having the big problem of amphetamines that are kind of too strong. So definitely, I think it's a drug that's helping, that will help more patients uh, than the traditional drug. Then there is a new drug that works completely differently, that works on histamine. You all have been taking antihistamine and you all know for, for uh, allergy, and you all know that it makes you sleep. So this drug does the opposite in the brains, but it doesn't make your allergy worse, but it makes you more awake. Uh, so general feeling of the drug is that it's, it's, a, it's a drug that helps to stay awake and reduce also cataplexy if you have cataplexy. It's, but it's certainly not like a curative 
compounds. You know, it, it can help some patients. And I suspect it will also help a lot of patients with idiopathic hypersomnia. And uh, we just need to use it more to really understand better which patient will benefit. But the big advantage of it is it clearly is different. It doesn't work the same way as amphetamines and all this other drug. So I think we have already two new, completely new drugs. And then finally, of course, uh, most exciting for me is that there is this new drugs uh, that are coming uh, that seems to be able to replace orexin hypocretin, which basically are, could replace what's missing in narcolepsy type 1. And it seems to be very spectacular in patients with narcolepsy type 1. It really kind of makes them completely awake. I mean, there's one, one study that was done, nothing, nothing that has been tried works so well. So there is a study where they have taken patients with narcolepsy type 1, and they use a test called the maintenance of of wakefulness test, which you know, so horrible, it's a torture for narcolepsy. You ask them to stay awake for 40 minutes, four times a day. A patient with narcolepsy basically can't even stay for three minutes. I mean, in a dark room like this, you tell them stay awake. I mean, that's just against the nature of, of narcoleptic patients. They fall asleep in two minutes. After the drugs, they could stay awake for 40 minutes, the entire time of the test. Nothing that I've seen ever has been able to do that. So that's a big hope for patients with narcolepsy, type one. In it's just starting right now, right? The clinical trials in the US yeah, are just starting. Yes. And, and the good thing is that there is another, it worked also in people with idiopathic hypersomnia or sleep apnea, for example. You know, people with sleep apnea sometimes are tired and we can't really get them back to normal. And we don't really know why, but it's clearly not due to the lack of orexin but it still made them more awake as well. So it works also in normal people. So I think it could very well help a lot, you know, patients with idiopathic hypersomnia or narcolepsy type two. You know, it's not because it's not the cause of the problem it's that it's not effective. We use drugs for pain, you know, like if you have pain, you take opioids or anti-inflammatory and sometimes they work even if you don't have an abnormality in the opioid system. I mean, it's right. there's symptomatic treatment. so. I think that there's big hope that this will make a big difference. And you're right. So clinical trials are being started. Unfortunately, they were interrupted because of the COVID-19. We, we can't do anything. To, everything was stopped. And, but I think they will restart as soon as, as we are done. I mean, for us, since Stanford asked for a lot of paperwork, <laughs> it just gave us more time to do the paperwork to start the trial. If, if people want to look for clinical trials, clinicaltrials.gov is a good place to look and search for narcolepsy and get more yes. information because it is a great way. Unless we have people that are willing to participate in clinical trials, we can't get new treatments. Um, yes, you're and right. So we do and and I, I like to say what's a little tough about clinical trials, of course, is that first you may be on placebo. So, you know, often, always you have one arm where it's placebo and one arm where it's active. And the second thing that can be very frustrating is that it may work great, but then after you can't have the drug, they will tell you, I'm sorry, we need to wait until it's approved. So sometimes it can be almost like a, a taste of what it's going to be, and then you can't continue. But still, I think if we don't have anyone you know, doing this kind of studies, then it will never be available to anyone. So okay. that's why I'm hoping that it will happen during the summer, because... You know, the summer is a good time, for example, for, for students that are already in college, or it's easier for people to take some time off, you know, because since they have to stop their medication, uh, it's easier for people to, to do it, yeah. Yeah, um, so definitely, if you can, that's a good thing that you can help to advance science, and we, we are always are looking, I mean, it's just exciting that we have clinical trials finally in the narcolepsy space, so. Is there anything else on treatments? No, but I, I really do think that what I was telling you about monitoring and being able to have this new technology, right now the problem is everyone is measuring sleep with their watch. I'm sure you all have this ling, ling, ling. And we know that it doesn't really work very well because it measures activity. So if you don't move, it says you sleep because it just can't measure your brain activity. But now there's some new devices that can measure brain activity and that you can wear at home and the data could be directly sent to the you know to uh, to a clinician and i really hope that in the next few years we'll be able to have people really wear these things for several days 
and we'll really see that will be useful not only for potentially diagnosing patients, you know, understanding really what the nature of their sleep attacks and, and so forth. So when they're spaced out, what's happening in their brain, but also potentially titrate the drug to really see that it's really helping the patients on their actual symptoms. So I'm, I'm very positive. Uh, I think the, the development of new technology is also going to really help a lot of patients to get better treated. Because often we, we just uh, are working in the dark, you know, we just titrate. And some people, including myself, we are not always very good judges of how we feel. It's very difficult to, to judge really completely how you feel. That's why, you know, of course, when, when I talk to patients, I, I often like, if certainly in children, it's very helpful to talk to the parents because sometimes the perception of the patient is different. You know, very often patients with narcolepsy underestimate their symptoms. They say, oh, I don't have cataplexy anymore, but in fact, you see them having cataplexy all the time. And so having an objective measure is really helpful. And I'm really hoping that will help to treat better patients as well. So it's not only drugs, I think devices are going to help a lot. That's exciting. I didn't, yeah, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. So I wanted to ask you a question. It was my favorite question we got back in 2018 when we did our broadcast, which was, uh, what keeps you up at night and what energizes you to get up in the morning? I mean, for narcolepsy patients or personally? Just like, well, I'll, t I'll go first. How about that? Okay. Yeah, go ahead. For the narcolepsy community, I would say what keeps me up at night is, I think, worrying about whether we're doing enough on the advocacy front. And um, I know we already do, doing a lot and we're doing more and more. And I'm so proud of that. But I just um, continue to think we focus a lot of our efforts at NIH as far as the uh, NINDS. Uh, it's just one of the institutes there. And now Dr. Mignot's research is actually more in immunology, which is actually a different department or institute at NIH. And we haven't focused um, our efforts on that as much. So, and then the thing that energizes me to get up in the morning is I'm super excited to be working a lot more and, and actually even talking to Dr. Mignot recently about social support. And I just think that the social experience of narcolepsy has been under-recognized a little bit like how Dr. Mignot, you said, like, we thought like the brain was the thing you know, and then you realize there's the body. And then I would say there's the body. And then there's also like all the people around the person with narcolepsy. And I think that the, you know, family and friends and the impact that a community and society has on our experience with narcolepsy is, is underrated. So there's my answer. So what's okay. yours? So I, I would say that definitely what keeps me at night is the funding. It's just like, you know, we always are struggling. We have to write these grants and they get rejected by people who don't know what they are talking about. I'm so sorry, but, you know, for example, I told you this HLA DQB10602, the lifetime I submit on my grant to NIH. I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of studies that have shown that it's like 97% that it's really all the same disease. And one of the reviewers said, oh, but, you know, the disease, narcolepsy is complicated. It's not just one mechanism for the narcolepsy type one. And it's just, you know, so you, you have people review your grant, you take nine months, months of writing it, you submit it, and then you have people who don't know anything that spend 10 minutes and destroy it. And then you read it and you say they are completely incompetent and you have no way of doing anything. That's really hard. Then what energized me the most, I mean, I have to say still the, the new agonist. I mean, the, I, I'm so excited for patients, you know. If it works as well as it looks like, I mean, this is going to be a real change for a lot of people. And I think we're very close to really making a dramatic change in the diagnosis and the treatment of this disease. That will be so profound that people who have narcolepsy won't have the same life that people who have had it today. And I mean, when you think about that, it's just unbelievable. I mean, it just, all this suffering that will be gone, I think is, is, is for generation. You know, it's not just now, it's going to be forever. And that's what's really exciting about research too, is that not only you can do a lot of good for a lot of people, but also there's this discovery process, which is really amazing. You know, it's uh, discovering something new. There's nothing more exciting. So I don't have any problem being excited. I really like how the um, birds started chirping uh, behind you as you started talking about what made you hopeful. So I feel like the yes. birds are on our side. <laughs> it has never been a better time for patients with narcolepsy. The future is really bright. 
Yeah. And I think that was really humbling for me to realize when I first started treatment in 2007, you know, I didn't like, you know, I was like, oh, these treatments are so challenging. And then um, when I started studying the history and realizing that, you know, how many people had fought to even make those treatments available for people like me to be diagnosed in 2007 and to then be like, oh, these treatments are horrible. Like other people fought so hard for, to make those available. And, and they have been, you can see already the progress, I think, in, oh, yes. in how far we've come. So that's got to be the exciting thing is that we can see that that'll happen even more so, let's hope. Yes. The You're also saying that I think we need to make progress in, which I'm hoping is recognition of narcolepsy. I mean, there are still people who definitely have narcolepsies. I don't know they have it. It's hard because... I don't know how to do it yet. You know, a lot of people have done campaigns with, I think we have to go straight to the public. So I really appreciate a little bit what also what you're doing, by the way, of course, Julie, because I think the new model shouldn't be to try just get doctors to recognize better narcolepsy. I mean, this is hopeless. I mean, most of the patients that come to me, very often it's not the doctor, it's themselves that figure out what it was. I mean, it's a different yeah. world out there. And I think, but still, even with that, there are still people who just don't know they have narcolepsy. And I just uh, think we, we need to figure out, especially in children, I think it's really a problem because children, if we don't catch their disease very quickly, it's so much harder to bring them back where they were, you know, when they've skid out of the road, you know, like miles away, you have to bring them back. And it's almost criminal, you know, if you don't treat a child really well from the beginning. We're just so thankful to you, Dr. Mignot, for taking this time. I hope it was helpful. Oh, it's just so unbelievably helpful, I think. All right. Thank you so much, Julie. It was wonderful, as usual. The Project Sleep Podcast is produced by Carver Sound Productions. For more information on podcast production services, visit carversoundproductions.com.